0: Are you a music school owner looking to scale your program from just a handful of teachers to a highly profitable, well-organized and mission-driven company? Well, I'm Nate Shaw, co-founder of the Brooklyn
1: Music Factory. And I'm Daniel Patterson, founder of Grow Your Music Studio. And we're here to help you discover a proven pathway to sustainable growth in your music school. So get ready
0: to take your passion for music education and scale it to a seven-figure music school.
1: When I was thinking about the second quarter of 2022 and what Nate and I want to do with the podcast, we were thinking, Hey, let's start getting more outside perspectives on and, and have a few interviews. And you were one of the first people, uh, folks I thought about. And the reason is that in the last couple of years, I've seen a real surge in the number of school owners who want to build an income stream beyond just teaching lessons beyond just having special programs in their school. That that school owners are now opening their eyes to the idea of getting a national or international reach through online lessons, building courses, having digital resources available. Um, And in your case, and the reason why I wanted to speak to you, because I think you're an incredible example of this, having some sort of internal resource that is so high quality, so good that by offering it to other schools, they could, that school or that group of schools or hundreds of schools could potentially um, create a great program in their school using the kind of the mindshare, the ideas of someone else. And that's what you've done with your Kids Rock program, Junior Rockers, Piano Jam, that you uh, created this resource, this curriculum and started licensing it out to other schools. And so I thought this would be a good time to kind of, bring this story to the fore. Although you're very well known around the music world, um, I think there's an opportunity to kind of introduce you and this idea to to other folks. So I'd love to uh, jump in and just start talking about this. How's that sound?
2: Yeah, no, it's, uh, um, I kind of stumbled into the the licensing model. And um, yeah, I've also noticed there's sort of an influx of, people either launching products during COVID, obviously mostly, um, you know, digital products, whether it be apps, um, teaching, online teaching programs. And, um, yeah, where, where would you like me to begin in terms of?
1: I had, I had a thought, uh, let's just talk about your music school background. Uh, I'd love to kind of get, um, to get an insight, you know, just maybe one or two minutes about, uh, Uh, how you got started even in the music teaching business and the music school ownership business.
2: Yeah, I had, you know, so my background was, I was always a songwriter in high school and college. When I was in college, I was in a jazz studies program. And even as an 18, 19 year old, I was thinking this, I would have loved as a teenager to have had an, an adult mentoring my band and guiding us, you know, musically. And that's what was happening in college is it was, we were in jazz combos with these adult teachers. And I just kept thinking this would work great in a rock band setting. And that Mm -hmm. thought never left my mind. I, you know, kind of taught on and off throughout my twenties. And then in my thirties, I decided to open a music school really based on that, that model that I experienced Hmm. in college. And so I did that, but then, you know, as I started, um, a rock in you know, like kind of a school of rock styles uh business. The problem with that was it was there was delayed. Well, first of all, getting kids in my rock bands, that's where the profit margins were. But I couldn't place a brand new student into a rock band because they had to build up some skill set. So that meant a new, say, 10-year-old coming in, it might take six months or so before they could get into the rock band. That's where. Uh, The profits, the profit margins improved, and that's where the customer experience really improved. And it was a a delayed gratification. So that always bothered me that, like, you know, like, can I get these kids into the band on day one? That was always a a question on my mind. But it became apparent to me, and and the answer was no to that. Like, no.
1: (laughs) I was going to (laughs) ask.
2: Right. In in order to even play a simple Ramon song, no, you know, you know, don't mean to offend any Ramones fans. I'm actually a huge Ramones fan, but it takes time. You got to be able to play power chords and you have to be able to play at a fast tempo. That takes time, even though the chord structures are are, are relatively simple. So um, I just let it go. It's like, okay, there, there's no way around it. You know, you're going to have to play, you're going to have to build some skills, but I would also Always was in the back of my head was what I like to call my heart and soul and chopsticks experience, where my um, babysitter at the age of nine showed me how to play the chords to heart and soul and the the two finger version of chopsticks. Oh, yeah. And I'd say within three to five minutes, I was up and running on it. And it was instant gratification. It was instant. And that's actually what led my parents to getting me into into piano lessons. But the piano lessons moved much slower and um, results took much longer to achieve, whereas my babysitter was a more effective teacher <sighs> because she was giving me um, I, I, I was getting like a, a bite of the candy bar from day one. And so. Those two, you know, my jazz background and my sort of babysitter uh, story was always kind of in the back of my mind. And it also became apparent to me that there was a, a gap, an ed, uh, age gap in the music education industry. There were lots of parent-child programs, music together, kinder music, music fun time for that sort of kind of preschool age, kindergarten. But there wasn't... Um, you know, the kids age out and then they're too young for private lessons. And so that was sort of, um, and this during the recession is when I started dealing with that problem because my teenagers were dropping out left and right during, and you're talking 2008, right? Right. 2008, 2009. I was like, all of my, all the parents were like, you know what, little, you know what, Billy, you're going to go into the garage the way we did it as teenagers and put a garage band together. I'm not going to pay 200 bucks a month while we're worried about, you know, dad losing his job. So meanwhile, I'm losing students and I'm saying no to five-year-olds that want, uh, you know, guitar lessons. Something, it doesn't look right with this picture. And that's kind of how Kids Rock came about. As I said, fine, I'm just going to take a group of four, five, six, seven-year-olds, put them in a room with instruments and see what I can create. I, I didn't charge anything for it. Mm-hmm. For about six months. Because I wanted the freedom to, um, to fail. And I wanted to have the freedom to dramatically change the program each week. And I did for a few, a few months.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: that's sort of the, 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 the quick overview. Yeah. When did you open your music school?
1: 2004. Three. Three? And so yeah. about, about five years in, you started innovating and trying to solve this problem.
2: Yeah. And I had a also, I had a woman, um, you guys familiar with the Music Together program? Love it. So I had a woman who licensed the program. So I was familiar with that model because she licensed a program and she retired, or actually she and I tried to create a music program for that age group to compete with music together. And we called it Kids Rock. But it was like parent-child, you know, music playing with shakers. And the program fell apart. It didn't really catch on because we hadn't done our research in terms of whether there was room in the market for it. And it was already a pretty noisy market with some of these programs that I mentioned. That was mid-2000s, right? Right, right. Wow. I mean, there were a good four or five out there. And then she said, you know what? I'm done teaching this stuff. I'm retiring Here's my email list of a hundred people. You can have it if you want. And I'm like, hey, what am I going to do with an email list with five, with a hundred, you know, four and five-year-olds? I'm like, I got to do something. I mean, that's gold right there. I mean, that was years of work of her gathering. And some of those kids were older, though. That was her current students as well as her inactive students. So I said, let me just send out an email blast to the list and invite these kids to a free like rock band class and see what happens. Because hmm. I saw with my own kid, Daniel, you have, how old's your son? Like five or six, maybe older he's, now. He's nine. Okay. <laughs> that happens to me more and more. Where I think like a friend has like, oh, your kid's three now, right? And they're like, no, he's 21. <laughs> um, okay, well, um, so you can relate. Like I was looking at my oldest who was five at the time, and I noticed that he could keep time. He understood quarter notes and eighth notes and he could, you know, he could clap with music. And so I said, "Okay, these kids know how to they can feel time, but their fine motor skills aren't quite developed yet. And their ability to focus is extremely limited. So I kind of took those factors into play and developed kids rock. But ultimately allowed this age group by modifying instruments, by writing music specifically for the program, everything's customized to make ensemble performance a reality for this for this age group. And it worked, I had that like moment. What does Oprah call it? An aha moment where I have four-year-old, I had the kids at that point on a one-string guitar and mm. they were all vamping on like an A chord. And they could keep time. And the drums were, like, everyone was matching the rhythm. So there was no um, layers of rhythm. It was just everyone together doing a combination of quarter and eighth notes. And I was like, oh, my God, that's music. Like, that's, you know, there's harmony and there's rhythm. And they're doing it together. And I was like, that's it. This thing thing could work. I got to figure it out. And the parents came in that day and they heard the group and they were so, like, blown away. Cameras are up. Videos oh, are going. Yeah. I'm like,
1: okay, there's... That's a good sign. Right. The writing's on the wall. I've, I've got something here. So I think, the, Nate, I, I'm curious. You, you've not said much, but before I turn it over to you, just the first principle I'm drawing out of this is... And these right now, these episodes haven't been released yet, Dave, but they will be by the time this one comes out. But recently, Nate and I did um, an episode where I talked about uh, how my program developed in my school and Nate has spent time on the podcast over the last couple of months talking about programs developed in their school. And it seems that between the three of us, these ideas that we've now kind of shared with the music world all came because we were trying to solve one of our own problems. And, and I think that might be the first principle to draw from this podcast for someone who, again, based on the premise of this episode, if, if you have something internal to your school that is really working for you and is solving one of those problems that music school owners often struggle with or complain about. Um, A lot of times these things come from trying to solve one of those big, you know, one of those big problems. Um, It's just a kind of a principle that I think I'm seeing here already. Nate, thoughts, questions? Curious. Yeah, Dave, I love
0: your origin story, dude. I just love the... um Fact that you reference your babysitter, and I'm sure you've shared this story many times because you. Ha- I, I mean, I personally know people that really thrive using your program. Um, but I wrote down a couple of thoughts, and I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more because here's what I hear in this, and we run into this at Brooklyn Music Factory in training our teachers consistently, which is that one of the first resistance points is trying to release them from the word talent i.e., this student has talent, this student does not have talent. And what's marked in your language is you never use words like that. You say, you say, I'd like to do research on what's gonna work for four-year-olds. And then, and which is just totally awesome, dude, because what I heard in the babysitter story I wrote down here in my notes was what is the actual necess- needed pace of inspiration? Mm. Right. And so you put it beautifully. You were like, dude, I got a bite of the chocolate bar every time. And your babysitter was more qualified to teach you, dude, than the teacher that, you know, the piano teacher that went to the conservatory. Yep. And I'd like the tell me about the pace of inspiration, for example, in Kids Rock. And, and am I using the right term here? Like, is that how you're thinking about it? It's sort of like you also said instant gratification, but it's not like a. To me, it's not like I need always to be told I'm awesome. It's that I always, we use this language all the time, again, in training at BMF, which is every time a student leaves their lesson, we know we've succeeded in our lesson architecture and our game plan if they can't wait to come back. Right. Right. So somehow instant gratification means to me like I'm just like eating too much sugar and then freaking out. I'm like, ah, I want, you know, (sighs) which is different than I can't wait to come back seven days later. Um, tell me a little bit about, like am I, am I tell me about your pace of inspiration as you move a student through like a 12-year, a 12-year, 12 12-week 12 arc maybe of kids rock.
2: Well, I I think what what I have found is that kids come into music lessons, whether they're four or whether they're 14, with this idea that playing an instrument is gonna be hard to do. Um, their parent has probably helped feed that idea because you know they took lessons as a kid. They found it hard to do. They didn't practice. And in their mind, they failed. And I can tell you, and I'm sure you guys have heard this too from parents. I wish I had stuck with my music lessons as a child. I hated it, but I wish I had stuck to it. That makes no sense. Why would you wish you would continued on with something that, that you hated? And I think it's... Um, I think there are false beliefs that kids have when they come into lessons that we have to tear down and give them with new beliefs. And playing an instrument, playing heart and soul, and playing um, chopsticks on the piano. And what's the other song you play with your knuckles across the three black keys? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's that called? <laughs> I
1: don't even know, dude, like I'm shaving a haircut. Jay, nice! Yeah.
2: My dad taught me that. And it was right there with heart and soul where instant gratification is it, it teared down the idea, the false belief that playing an instrument is hard to do that. It, may, it was instantaneous. And then through these three different songs, I began to build a belief that no music is fun. It's easy to do. And I really pick it up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Now there is a, there's a truth there in that playing, playing an instrument well Is hard to do, but it's sort of like, I don't know, like throwing a curveball is hard to do, but pitching in Little League isn't hard to do. You just throw the ball over the plate, instant results. So it's sort of my approach to Kids Rock was in my uh, my approach to Kids Rock. Impacted my entire school, and that I wanted my whole school to be how can we get these kids to kind of go back to what you were saying, Nate, to leave every lesson feeling like, oh my God, I just had an experience in there that I can't wait to get again. The only way to get it is for me to come back next week. It's the only way. And for me, um, like, in, like in Daniel's uh, business model, the experience that they can't create at home is they can't have Daniel at home home guiding them through the process. The only way to have that combination of having alone time to practice and then having a mentor comment is they got to come back next week. And so that whole idea of like in kids rock, the only way the four-year-old can get that rock band experience is to come back next week. And then I said in my private lessons, what can I do in my private lessons to make the kids say the same thing? And my conclusion was in the private lesson, create the feeling of a band experience to the best of your ability. Drum loop and play along with the kid constantly. The kid can't create that at home. They can get the drum loop, but they can't have the teacher playing these cool chord changes as they um, improvise. So it's always, I think every music school owner, should ask themselves, what can we do in our lessons that the kid can't create at home that is so unique that the kid's constantly wanting to come back, even if they aren't practicing, that they they want to come back? Because then if the parent says, you know what, we're pulling you from lessons, you're not practicing. Mom, but I love it so much. Yeah. Don't,
1: don't. If you can get the kid to say that, that's, that's a huge win. So with this program, is Is this a replacement for uh, well, yeah, is this a replacement for private lessons, or is this an add-on that runs alongside kind of the main skill acquisition of the instrument?
2: Great question. So both kids' rock and junior rockers and a quick aside, Junior rockers is philosophically the same as kids rock, but it's for ages seven to eleven. Um, The music is written for the program. The instruments aren't modified and the kids are on set instruments. Both Kids Rock and Junior Rockers introduce um, a step before private lessons. So it's saying before you do private lessons, join the band. Music lessons is the only artistic and athletic discipline that I can think of where the kid starts out in a private coaching um relationship. If you're going to join to go back to the baseball analogy, if your son, if Daniel, if your son shows that he's got some skills pitching, he's only going to pitch on the team for a while. Mm-hmm. But then if his the coach of the team says, "Look, Daniel, your son's really got some pitching a- a- ability. You know, I think he might benefit from working with a private pitching coach because he's starting to show signs that he can throw a curveball, but I can't give him that attention here. Um. And you Great, I'm going to get him a pitching coach. And now he can throw a curveball and then he can move on to a more competitive team. Um, everybody else on the team who isn't maybe as driven as him, they can they can all be on the team together and still enjoy it. And that yeah. was my whole idea of, no, get these kids. The, the end result of any instrument, regardless of the style of music and and. Playing it with an ensemble, playing in a rock band or a symphony orchestra is the ultimate musical rush. Playing solo piano alone is certainly can be an elevating and inspiring moment. But having a full ensemble thundering away as you play, is pretty awesome. So it's like, OK, day one, let's just give them that. Like in baseball, day one, your kid is five and he's playing t-ball. Everyone's seeing the end result from day one. In our industry, we do it backwards. We go, the end result, the ultimate thrill is the ensemble, but it's going to take you a few years. And I I know you're only eight,
1: but it's a few years. What's a few years? Well, when you're eight, it's everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the aha moment for you when you were like, wait, I've got something here. I want to share it with the world. So
2: I got a phone call
1: from a guy
2: in St. Louis, originally from St. Louis, where I had my school. And I had a guy, I mean, he was, his school was maybe eight miles away from me. We had a very friendly relationship. We really weren't direct competitors. And he called me, he's like, Dave, I don't know what to do. I've got School of of Rocks coming to St. Louis. They're going to open up a location three miles down the road from me. And I just started a rock band program. And I instantly went into sales mode. And what year was this? What was year was this? 2000 and um, maybe nine or mm-hmm. maybe 2010. Yeah, I was doing it. So I, I had kids rock up and running at my school, not junior rockers yet. I was g- generating about $40,000 in revenue from just kids Rock, so I was thrilled to have that extra shot in the arm of cash. Plus those kids rockers were moving into private lessons. So it was totally working. And so I said to him, I said, look, if you want to compete with School of Rock, you can't play their game. I mean, they're going to come in here and they're going to corner the market with um, rock band programs for teenagers. That's their thing. And they got the damn name of the movie in their name. That would be like a, a candy store setting up shop. And then a few years later, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory moves in next door, And they're just a candy store, but they got the name of the movie. Yeah, And you can't compete with that. So you can't go head to head with School of Rock and where they're strong. You can go ahead. You can find where they're weak, where they're vulnerable and move in there. And I said, look, School of Rock, they're not interested in these little kids. And I got this Kids Rock program. It's for ages four to seven. You could um, get kids coming into you at an age that School of Rock isn't interested in. And now they're going to have an, an emotional loyalty to you. And now they'll be confronted with a decision when they're older as to whether they want to stay with you or go to school of Rock. And he said, great, I'll, I'll do it. Like, I'll, I'll try anything. And I called my lawyer. and I'm like, how do I do this? And he's like, you got to license it to them. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And so it kind of, you know, went from there. Hmm. And I was told, like, I was on site. I, I had no, I mean... Being able to license it means I have to hand it over in a box to somebody. And say, Here's the set of instructions. See you later. Well, yes. I, it, it wasn't developed like that. So I literally was like going out there at least twice a month to help the teachers.
1: And I think that's actually a really important thing for people to realize if they're wanting to get into, again, if they have an online course or something they want to license or they're wanting to create some sort of special program that. The first couple clients, you're going to do way more work, but that's okay because you're actually getting a lot of really useful data uh, in terms of well, where are they struggling, and and when I and you know again this was a couple episodes ago when I uh, when I first started teaching people how to do my group lesson model, those first dozen or so people got way more access to me than you know subsequent folks just because I had a real fear, like, what if I can't actually teach how to do what I'm doing to other people? Like there was actual fear on my part in terms of, um, is this even duplicatable or, and and this wasn't from an egotistical place, but, or can only I do this because of, you know, my background, my training, the fact that we'd run summer camps with 24 kids at a time, teaching them piano in less than a week. But, you know, as it turned out, it was duplicatable and, um,
2: yeah. Well, and I, I think it's interesting about, about your program, and I mean everybody, it's it works with you at the helm. And some of that is actual processes that you've implemented into the, the piano class. And a part of it's you, your personality. Hmm. And so it's like, okay, how do you go? Okay, somebody might be teaching this who doesn't have their personality is different than mine. How can I give them the tools that they need? to be successful. And I even started like scripting little um, anecdotes for the teachers yeah. to say, Oh, when you're having a behavior issue, here's some different anecdotes. Here's some like bad dad jokes. I have a lot of bad dad jokes in my program. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You know, like for, for example, one of them is, I would always re- refer to the kids as like, like I would always refer to the boys as cowboy. All right, cowboy, have a seat. Eventually a kid's going to say, I'm not a cowboy. And then in the training it says, Well, whose horse is that outside in the parking lot? And all the kids would laugh. <laughs> it's such a bad joke.
0: But the kids would look. like,
2: wait, you saw a horse in the parking lot? And I was like, Yeah, when you guys go go out there, you'll see the horse in the parking lot. And they would abs- they would obsess over it. They would look in the parking lot, no horse. And then next week they'd bring it up that there was no horse in the parking lot. It's just, you know, any little um anecdotes like that, I help. I found that were they were really
0: helpful for the teachers. Dude, that Dave, that is such an inside tip that probably right. will fall on some deaf ears, actually. Some of our listeners will be like, wait, what? You can use that joke repeatedly and it works? Yes. And it, Dude, I got to come back to a couple of things you said like 20 minutes ago because I think you're touching on some essential points. The first is you talked about researching your own child. Yeah. Right, you were like, I'm watching my five year old, um, who seems to be grooving, holding quarters, eights, etc. And then, honestly, I linked the dad joke to the same version of research. You're like, and so, oh right, right, where you're like, oh man, actually, I make horse, I make horse jokes to my kids all the time, you know, or whatever, whatever the joke is. Um, so my question to you actually comes to because. I mean, I'm speaking from experience where we oftentimes bring on teachers that are 22, three, four, five. They're a long ways away from having a five-year-old. You know what I'm saying? And yet we're asking them to have that level of empathy for in the classroom or at least develop the skills. Um, Can you share a couple stories uh, for our listeners that maybe have similar types of teachers where they just don't believe that the teacher will even be able to deliver the cowboy horse joke. They don't well, have faith. You know what is have a video, have your camera
2: recording the class all the time. Mm-hmm. And then um, I would say the cowboy joke and I'd look up at the clock and say, I set it at four 15. That means 15 minutes into the class. I said the joke, and then I write down on a piece of paper, 15 minutes. So I'm making notes on a pad as to kind of real-time events. So then in my training, what I do is I have videos of class, and I stop it, and I go, did you see what I did right there? So now I'm talking over the video kind of in post-production. The reason I did this is because this kid wasn't playing – Like, for example, in Kids Rock, I I talk a lot about how do you teach a group when one kid's struggling with an idea and nobody else's? Right. Well, you can't, in Kids Rock, I say you you shouldn't spend more than 20 to 30 seconds focused on an individual child. Well, what if a kid isn't clear as to where to put his finger on that B note on the guitar? So there's a game now of everyone's going to show off and do this thing for me, but the whole game exists to get that kid to play the B correctly. So maybe I'm making it. So there's a video of me doing it and I'll pause it in the training. So you see the video stop, but then you hear my audio kind of going, okay, you see what I did right there? And then I explain it. So it's hard to put down on paper an idea where you're, Trying to capture a social dynamic at at play in the classroom. So I do it though. I put it on paper, but then I have a video to kind of back it up to make it more real because the minute you start kind of articulating a social dynamic on paper, it seems much more complex and complicated <laughs> yeah. than it
0: really is. Yeah. that's that's so awesome. i've uh, I love that last comment around the social dynamic, trying to explain it. It also reminds me of a comment you made earlier, and I and and I'm trying to link something you said, Daniel, to what you said, Dave, around unique experience. It reminds me of when I'm in the classroom, you know, at BMF, it's a game-based approach. And oftentimes I'm in a lesson, and that's when I get my next idea, right? As a teacher, which you're describing right here. You're saying, oh, this is a tactic I'm using that's really effective to get this seven-year-old over a specific through a specific resistance point. And um, I want to highlight something that I'm observing in the story you're saying, which is that you as the innovator in this moment, back to Daniel's comment, you're solving a very specific issue. And that actually, Dave, is like, that's your moment of opportunity. That was your superpower, was that you literally could hold up your note. You could be taking notes on tactics while also teaching an amazing class, which- Right. Which I'm going to say out loud here. Not everybody does. In fact, I would say a minority of educators are, are are functioning in that realm. And so um, I want to I want to keep moving down your story here on helping to transform other school owners and other teachers' experience themselves. Um, and so you described like an amazing training tactic right there, dude. Like, okay, shoot video give them you know, a PDF sheet that they can work through and then watch the video proactively, learn specific tactics. I love the fact that you said, I look at a specific challenge on an instrument from one student, and then I create a group education opportunity around it. Right, That's right. totally badass, by the way. Everybody who's listening should write that Idea town, and I always tell the kids that's badass. It, 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 right, exactly. And then <laughs> and you, and I got in you,
2: trouble when I said that. I'm just kidding. yeah, yeah. No, you don't get
0: to <laughs> say badass in Brooklyn, but maybe place in other places. Brooklyn, to... you can get away with it. Not in Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> in Indiana. right? So that's dig funny. it. Uh, talk to me about the about your. So you, you've got your friend who's eight miles away, who's got their school of rock competition. Yeah, it's inspiring you to go help him with his challenge. Talk to me about how the training went there in sort of year one. Where did you success? And then to use your language, where were you free to fail and be like, oh, wait, this teacher that I'm training is totally dropping the ball?
2: Yeah, well, that I I first want to get back to a comment you made, then I'm going to answer that question. Hmm. Um, In terms of capturing tactics in the moment, I created a teaching manual for my school. Whenever I hired a new teacher, I said, trail me for a week and mm. make notes about how I teach. And then in the lesson, I would turn to the teacher and say, you see what I did just there? Make note of that. Call it, um, you know, transitioning from chords." And then, okay, kid, back to you. So I was having the trainees, the new hires, writing a manual for me yeah. for how to teach. And then at the end of the week, I'd say, okay, let's review your notes. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I need to systematize that. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So, so that's just a, a way that I think schools can a- apply that. You know, today is by having teachers mm. trail you. And I would say you're hired. I'm going to train. I'm going to pay you a training rate. I'm going. You're going to get paid thirty an hour, but I'm going to train pay you fifteen an hour. And basically, they're they're writing the manual for you. And yeah. then you could even have, you know, somebody else put those notes together in a cleaner, you know, format.
0: It's so smart yes. because we we literally, the, a lot of the um, school owners that we work at, uh, work with rather, this is a common resistance point. They're like, how am I possibly ever going to find the time to write the manual? And you're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. You don't write but it. You want to actually yeah. empower them to write the manual. And then that last point you glossed over quickly, but it's a really valuable one, which is that teacher doesn't have to have immaculate writing editorial skills. She just has to have great observation skills. She wouldn't have been hired for the gig if she didn't. Now you can pass it off to someone who can actually beautify the the, the work, right? Which is an editorial step.
2: And I haven't forgotten your question, but I want to add one more thing. What you can do is you can look at that new teacher's notes get out your phone and record yourself just talking about it Ooh, that's enough and then take and then take those notes the audio hire a virtual assistant for 8 dollars an hour in the philippines which i've done recently and say to that person transcribe these notes and then put it together in a kind of a bullet point format and great then it, it's done so i'm i've recently hired a virtual assistant because I um, need to delegate like pretty much all the functions in my business, and so it's but right. It's allowing me to do it without adding more time. It's I developed a system to capture what I'm doing, doing functions that I have to do anyway. I'm doing them anyway, but I'm capturing it, maybe video or audio, and then having somebody else organize it for me it or arrange is
0: so, it. Oh, it's so smart, And Daniel. You talk about this all the time, just in terms of working with team. Um, and you're, what you're, you're capturing this idea that there's something that's very unique to you, Dave, and that's where you're going to have the most impact for the world. So stay in the zone of that. Right. And Great then advice. empower others to, to, to to sort of do what's necessary to package it and be able to actually help others. Um, Okay, back to our- back to the question. Yeah, yeah so so I, I sold my first license, and you know
2: I was focused on is is this licensee happy? Is he making money? Yes, he's happy and he's making money. Great. What I wasn't doing was really picking his mind for like. Okay, I'm glad it's working, but what's not working about it? Like I wasn't really focused on how I could improve it. And then I started licensing some of these and I got some very painful feedback. Somebody said to me, Hey, I love the program, but um, like there's no lesson plans. Like, like, how are my teachers supposed to organize? Like there were certain th- things that I, I just thought it was pretty obvious. And the yeah. teacher at school <laughs> number one. Was doing it because he was a great teacher. He was able to, on his own, just kind of put two and two together. And by licensing it to somebody where things weren't so obvious, I then realized, oh, I have to make things more obvious. I have to think, I have to create more of a plan, a step by step plan. And then I finally got it to a point where I'm like, okay, every minute of the class is going to be mapped out. I'm going to fill it up with scripts and anecdotes. And I say to the teachers, you don't have to memorize this stuff, but this is, if you follow this, you'll be successful, learn it, and then make it your own. Mm. Yeah, Like Daniel, I saw Darren Simon doing your program in Boston, and I don't know if this is in your program, but he did this thing where at the very end of the class, He kind of had everyone come together and he talked to them. Like during the class, they were doing a program. They're all in their own kind of station and he they're working with him. But then at the very end, he acknowledged kids in the class for accomplishments that they had made recently. Hmm. I was like, oh, what are now it's now it feels a little bit more like a it, it became a social. Shared moment for everybody in in the class. I was like, "Oh, that's cool. Maybe that's his own spin on it." But it's just like (laughs) that's what I found is that the teachers doing the programs in different cities, they were sharing with me what they were doing. I'm like, "Oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to write it into the program." Into the program,
1: yeah. I don't know about you, but I didn't get an owner's manual when I started my music school. And I wasted a lot of time on trial and error and making things up as I went along. But you don't have to do that. Nate and I are building a library of resources and tools exclusively for fans of this podcast. Go to growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS and sign up to receive podcast updates, free resources, and even submit questions for us to answer on the podcast. That's growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS. And we look forward to answering your questions. How long did it take you to get from one licensee to 10? Mm. Probably two years. Interesting. Mm. It was a slow go
2: at the beginning. Why do you think that is? Well, it's interesting. One guy has this very like, visual memory of, I was on the phone with the person and somebody said, this program sounds great. It seems a little risky and I don't even know anything about you. Mm. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I gotta do something about that. How can I get people to know about me? And that was like, the podcast kind of eventually was a result of that, uh, my attempt to solve that problem. And um, the problem with Kids Rock or everything that's great about kids rock is everything that's challenging about it, which is parents with four-year-olds aren't going, where can I get my kid enrolled in a rock band? They're just not looking for it. So that now becomes a marketing challenge. And um, I have to somehow let people know there's a problem out there and here's a solution to it. And here's proof that it works. Look, let's look at this video of four-year-olds up on stage in front of 300 people in a big nightclub sounding pretty good for four-year-olds. They don't sound like, you know, 15-year-olds, you know, playing Rush, but they sound like four-year-olds that are kind of successfully working their way through a a piece of music. Hmm. I don't know if that answered your question. Oh, no, oh, no, that, oh, oh but helpful. then I had a tipping point. I was on Tim Toppin's podcast. Oh, look at that. No pun intended. I had a tipping yeah. point on <laughs> Tim Toppin's uh, <laughs> uh, a podcast. And after that, I started getting calls. And then I went on another podcast on Danny Thompson's podcast. And then I went on the podcast, Danny. At that point, I had 14 licenses. I was about two years into it maybe even more. And Danny said, why do you think you only have 14? And that was like another, like stab to the heart, you know, because it was kind of like, I know I think about that all the time. After that podcast, then I was like up to 25. So the combination of uh, Tim's and Danny's podcast, I then really got the ball. Rolling. What year was that? What year was, was that? Maybe like 2000 and maybe 13, 14. Oh.
1: Danny
2: wow. was doing a podcast that early? Maybe that was later then. Wow. I hmm. bet you it was like, you know, you know, you're right. I bet it was later. And so, which means I probably went four to five years with like, by the time I went on like Tim's podcast, I probably had 10. And I bet you that was, that must've been four or five years into it. Wow. Okay. Which I didn't really care that much about. I was like, like my music school's doing well. I had, you know, eight licenses in the Midwest. That was bringing in some additional revenue. Yeah. And um, so I was happy. It wasn't until then I went on the podcast, things started really growing. And it's funny is I didn't know how to market my programs at first. I literally would email schools in like Indianapolis and then say, I'm coming to Indianapolis on November, the week of November 5th. I'd love Uh to meet with you. I literally would drive to the cities. I wasn't doing anything online. It just didn't occur. I just didn't know how to do digital marketing at that
1: point. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Hmm. So obviously the tipping point for you, it sounds like was five, six years ago. And then it sounds then that it sounds to me as if the, the, where it kind of went exponential was you getting more into the digital marketing realm. Um, So maybe give, And again, this is all in service of giving people kind of a mental blueprint. Like if they have something that is really valuable or they aspire to this, I think giving people a vision of not only what is possible, but even the kind of beginning steps of it can help people kind of get off the couch and start moving towards that thing. Um, How would you now just uh, describe your process? So if your process before was, Um, okay, I'm going to email people individually and and offer to meet with them. What is it now that drives the success of the program? So so now is that, well, I began to focus on my personal brand.
2: And I was in, what was the um, studio challenge? I was in that Facebook group. And I noticed that I would post things. I, I would just share little ideas in that group. And I would get a lot of response in that group. And I'm like, huh, like, wow, maybe I should start blogging about this stuff. So I started blogging about that, which was really the beginning of me building my personal brand. Mm-hmm. You know, I just became like a total marketing nerd. And I was just reading stuff all the time. And I would just repurpose those ideas to make it fit in the music lesson space. So by building the personal brand through blogging, I started my own Facebook group and then a podcast. People would buy into the idea of okay, this guy has some helpful information. Hmm. Then, when I pose of this idea of hey, here's this program I license. Yes, I know it seems challenging or impossible to actually achieve. Like I know the idea of four year olds playing in a rock band doesn't really seem feasible, but you can trust me. Look, look how I've helped you. Yeah. You know? Mm. So trying to build a, the what's it like trust factor. Yes. Maybe they'll be
1: open at least to my program at, at that point. Well, then that kind of leads me to a natural follow-up question, which is a lot of times, and I, I say this from personal experience, and Nate, I bet you've got stories about this too. Um, or or uh, yeah, I'll I'll just leave it at that. Is that A lot of times these types of programs, whether it's music together or kids rock or what I do or, or things of that nature, there's kind of, for the studio owner, there's a burden of ownership. There's this hump to get over where like your program's immense. You've got manuals, you send them a package, um, all these sorts of things. What have you found has been the thing that has um, helped people overcome the complexity of the system and just agree to do it. And and then they have to personally deal with the fallout of learning the entire system afterwards. But what's the thing that's kind of gotten people over the hump other than that like and trust factor. Um, Do do you kind of see what I'm getting at here? Social proof. They want
2: No one wants to test drive your new program. Mm -hmm. No one Mm -hmm. wants to be the first. And so you got to get that those early adapters you know, I got like when I got Danny Thompson on board to do Kids Rock, he he's like, oh, this is a no brainer. I'm like, really? For everybody else, it's a brainer. They can't wrap <laughs> their brains around it. You know, <laughs> right. OK, and great. And so um, then by folks shifting my marketing to let my clients do the marketing for me. You know, it's sort of like we all do this when we hear about, you know, like a new movie comes out. We want to see the reviews. We're not going to go to the movie on our own. Yeah. And so it's using testimonials, not just any testimonial. I think this is helpful with marketing your music school. Don't post a testimonial about how nice the music teacher is. Post the testimonial about how your child's life has, tra- has been transformed by taking lessons at the school. You know, so... I would post testimonials about people saying this program was so easy to implement. Within the first month, I was making already $3,000. It's getting people to, um, getting testimonials that directly address people's um, hurdles or potential hurdles that they might have in their mind about the program. So for example, You know, I could see someone doing Daniel's program to get testimonials where parents, you know, at first I was a little reluctant to sign up for a group class. I really wanted um, my child to do private lessons, but I was so pleased to see how much my child enjoyed, enjoyed coming every week. And, you know, I hated music lessons as a kid, and I'm just so happy to see how much my child loves, you know, Daniel's class who who would have ever thought that a group lesson could provide such value like, yeah. boom there you go that's you know and but you get those
0: testimonials by asking the right questions hmm yeah nice dave can i ask you a question around because this is one of your comments earlier i'm i'm trying to stay in the marketing mindset here um, in the stage of growth around let's say you know licensing one of our listeners is like i've I've now created something that I'm ready to license and I want to empower another school owner to be able to sell it. Um, You mentioned early on when you were doing Kids Rock at your own school in St. Louis, you're like, well, I'm adding 40,000 bucks into the bucket that wasn't there before. So I was psyched. How much of the marketing around or the sales um, cycle for bringing on a new school owner is around the revenue piece And the profitability versus, um, the transformation of the students, the relationship to the families, the lifetime value of a family, et cetera. So I know that those, I often see both of those as being really important questions from a school owner, right? Like, first of all, what, give me the financial fluency piece, right? And then second of all, give me the deliver on promise. How do I know that the student will still be here two years from now?
2: So what's the, I'm not clear.
0: Okay. So so the question question is, if you're, you're, let's say you're pitching to, um, you know, a new school owner who's really interested in licensing, how much of that is around the financial piece and how much is it around the classroom experience piece? Great.
2: So, what I do when I'm marketing to them to license my program, it's purely financial with a little sprinkle of, um, look how this is going to impact the kid. It's sprinkled in there. But then I follow it up even during the initial sales, uh, sales process where the sale isn't even made. I say, hey, you can start marketing your program today. You, you haven't bought with me yet but here i'm giving you all of my email marketing for free because it's not the email marketing it's not relevant to them if unless they buy the program and i say to them the first two emails you can use right now to 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 take the temperature of your audience to see what it level of interest there is so now as they look through there they kind of go oh here's the marketing language So they're seeing the emails, but they're also getting the full piece of the marketing language. So definitely when I'm trying to get them to persuade them to sign up to license the program, it's all about how it's going to impact them. But they have to believe in the fact that there is a level of interest within their market for it. One Uh thing I say to them is I'll say, um, just think for a moment how you initially responded when you heard about Kids Rock. Now think about how a parent is going to respond when they hear about it too. It's going to be similar to yours, but instead of them thinking about how it's going to help their business, they're going to focus on how it's going to help their child. So I try to keep them focused on that initial unfiltered emotional response of, oh, this sounds so cool. Mm -hmm. The brain comes into play and goes, oh, wait a minute, how am I going to make this work? And you know, what are the, is this going to like sidetrack me? And so I try to keep them focused on that imish, initial emotional moment.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love how you're putting it in two channels. You're saying, Hey, we have a business owner channel and let's, let's figure out how to communicate value there as a, as someone who licenses something. And then I'm going to stay in the channel of the parent who right. is holding the purse strings and making the purchase always.
2: Um, right, and 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 I'll start to cut you off, but I'll say things. to them I'm like, imagine how the families in your school are going to feel when you say X to them. Yeah. Now they're now they're turning off music school owner mind, and they're turning on parent mind and going, oh yeah, they're going to totally love it. But it's they you have to just kind of give them permission
1: to get yeah. their their parent you know mind on. And I would make the the comment that. Because I work with so many school owners on their marketing, m- my experience over the last six years has been that it's often difficult for a school owner to get out of their own perspective and into the perspective of the parent, despite the fact that they're interacting with them every single day, every single week. And, every and single the month. fact
2: that they might even be one themselves.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and so um, you. You tell them imagine what this parent is going to think and then you tell them what the parent will think that might be the first time that they even realize that the parent can even think that way so that that is a that's a that's really smart and really what you're highlighting here is I think another huge principle and takeaway that irrespective of whether you're going to license the thing you've created in your school to the world or whether you're just looking for advice on how to make your program seem more attractive to your local area, it's customer research is king. it's where every great product starts and um, I've said that so much in this podcast. I'm not going to go into that again, but once again, here we have another successful guy, Dave, who uh, is built something really good, both in his personal school and then for other school owners. And it's built on the back of customer research. And I'm just never not going to take the opportunity to point that out.
2: <laughs> well, and I want to share with you guys, Kids Rock, there was no customer research behind it. I, mm. And I was lucky. It did well. Mm. I launched a program during covid where I did no customer research and I paid the price for it big time. So I, you know, COVID hit. And at that point in time, I didn't own a music school. So I'm like, okay, what are these school owners thinking? So I came out with a product called the Virtual Music School. Well, my vision was that people could have an online music school that, that was beyond Zoom lessons. It was all these games. It was all these things. I was developing and developing and developing it. I launched it and I got crickets. Nobody bought it. I put in hours and hours of work. I could have avoided that by simply doing what you're talking about, Daniel, is just talking to school owners. What are you struggling with right now? How can I help you? Okay, that's helpful. What if I came up with a program that did this? Or what about a program that did this? Which either of these um, address an immediate problem? People didn't buy my program because they didn't know when COVID was going to be over. My product didn't make sense in a post-COVID world. And Mm. I developed the whole program first, and then I launched it. Had I done it again, I would have done the research. Had I done the research, I probably would have stopped at that point. But if the research was giving me the green light, I would have announced it without actually developing the program and saying it's going to launch in two months and then spend two months putting it together.
1: Well, so there's a really, oh my gosh, there's a really important point that you're making there because you said you didn't do customer research on Kids Rock as it pertains to marketing to other schools. Right. I didn't either on my successful group lessons training, But, but I had spent the previous 10 years building it and it worked in my school. You spent the previous you spent a long time building it and developing it. And even that five year period where you had less than 10 licensees, you were still probably developing materials and that sort of right. thing. That just for that, me is I was a, developing it for my benefit. Exactly. And so um I think when people have this idea of like, oh, I see everybody else as doing some sort of online course or um, um or they're becoming a coach or they're licensing something, I want to do that too. And they kind of take that model of, I want to do that versus the, you know, the, the building something in silence for a long, long time, the, the, the excellence is being built behind the scenes. I think that's where you get into trouble. And so, yeah, you didn't do customer research on it in the way that you might, if you already had an established business and you were trying to create a new product, I think, what you did, what I did, what Nate has done with some of the programs that that BMF has has created, um, is kind of the much longer and deeper work that's really pure and authentic because you built it for yourself. And um that, yeah, there's no customer research there, but even when you go to market it, Dave, I would say that um that that. Information you got the painful conversation you called it about a half hour ago, where the first guy who licensed it was really skilled and had no trouble doing it. You were doing customer research of a sort when you had folks that you licensed it to in that first dozen or so customers of yours, um, where they gave you negative feedback. You're like, oh, well, I just thought people could figure that out on their own. Like, so it's not my point to be oppositional to you. I think my point here is just to kind of. Um, nuance the conversation, say there's different types of customer research. Some take 10 years, right. some you can do in two months.
2: Well, well, in the case of Kids Rock, is it was playing out in real time in my business. And yeah. the parents were sharing with me, the end user was sharing with me how it was impacting their child, which made me go, huh, that means other children around the world can have that experience where like, let's say you're a music school and there's some maybe new management software that you've developed for your music school. And you're wondering whether you could license this or or not. Well, maybe there's other products out there that people go, well, I'm already using Noseby. So like, okay, I know yours is a little bit more customized to the music um, industry, but I'm just happy. i'm I'm fine with Nozbe. I don't want to deal with the pain of leaving that platform to bring in a new platform that, yeah, might be have some enhancements and some bells and whistles, but this is working just fine for me now, um, which is that's where I'm seeing a lot of growth where people are trying to launch um you know, uh, you know software and and apps. And those i I get a little not I worry for them, but that's where I think it can be a little tricky, whereas, you've got a, um, if you're going to launch a, a new app in our space, it's really, it really has to fix a problem that no other app is, is no other app within or with, or outside of our industry is, is, is fixing.
0: Mm. That's a really, Dave, I'm going to, can I, I'm going to make it real personal here for us at Brooklyn Music Factory, because we're going through something and I'd love your, I'd love your take on this. Um, Cause I, so much of what you're sharing is valuable around getting to know your customers, who's a successful licensee and who isn't, you know, who succeeds with it, who fails with it. Um, so, you know, we have a program called Mini Keys that leads into Jam Band One Hundred One. These are like yeah. a these are like a game based fluency first approach. We're very early in the stage of licensing it. We have one school right now, literally one that's in not far from us in New York. What's fascinating to me is that. Um, she has been quite successful in enrollment, like 50, 60, 70 students enrolling in mini keys. And so one of the moves I made was to try to figure out what's actually working on the ground. Like in other words, of the curriculum, what is she actually using and how would she make it different? Um, which you made a comment earlier about getting feedback from teacher, I mean, from other school owners and other teachers, what's working, what's not, and then iterating. So right now what we've done is, we've actually brought her in as a teacher at BMF and she's teaching mini keys classes and really just refining curriculum with us um, i'm curious like if i were to fast forward 6 months on this and were to do that would treat that relationship as as well as i could and get the most benefit around refining the curriculum what would you want to see happen around that mini keys curriculum iterating over time with that kind of Intimate feedback on what works and what doesn't. How would you well, want to it, see it change? It's all about coming up with the right questions. Tell me And what then, works. and then maybe getting
2: on the phone with them afterwards. You know, it, it's
0: um, does that answer your question? So what are questions that you ask that seem really effective, and what are questions that you ask where you just seem to get sort of answers that you can't act on? So. I can't think, you know, question. Like, I would ask questions
2: really about that would reveal, like, I almost wasn't interested in positive feedback. It was saying to myself, um, and I think it was Jay Abraham who said this, and Daniel, I know you're a fan. He said, We know what we do right, we want to know what we do wrong. And so, saying to the, a lot of people when they do surveys, They're thinking about what does the person want me to say? I don't want to hurt their feelings. Like what's the feedback they want? So coming out and saying, look, I, we can talk about the good stuff later. I want to hear what we're doing wrong. How can we make this program um, easier for you to to implement? What were some of your concerns when you first saw the materials? What was your experience like implementing it? Um, Kind of focusing on, like what their feelings were. And then throughout the process was the training and the program changing the, those feelings. Oh, I, I initially, I was a little overwhelmed when I saw how thick the book was that you sent me. But once I opened it up and I saw how it was laid out, I realized, okay, I this isn't going to be so in, in, intimidating. Or I had a hard time. Like, for example, I created a separate training for the teachers and a separate one for the owners. Mm, Whereas that was helpful because I was, the teachers were being bombarded with information that wasn't really applicable to the classroom. It was more applicable to the owner. And so just trying to really get my licensees to think about questions that they maybe hadn't even thought about themselves. Well, Dave, we love the program. We're making, you know, 50,000 a year. Like we don't have any issues with it. Yeah. Okay. But what could I do better? Like what I, I want to make it easier for you, you know? And someone made a point like, Oh, well it would be nice. in this, when they're doing this activity, if the teacher had more options, and that came about by me going, talking to teachers, going, do you ever feel like during this activity that you have enough to work with? You know, so it's like people are looking at it at face value when
0: they're going, yep, thumbs up. It works and I'm making money. Yes. Can you give us an example? What are the top three things that need to be included in owner training in your mind?
2: How to manage, how to market, how to manage the staff. Um, The things that I say to the owners are, I want this, you be able to implement this program and you spend like almost no time on implementing this. That you can go to your office staff and say, guys, here's what you have to do. Now, Mm -hmm. teachers, here's what you have to do. Now, owner, what you have to do is just manage these two components. Make sure that they're they're doing it. And be familiar enough with the program that you can talk about it with people.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, they need a 10,000 foot understanding of the program, the what and the why, and then they need to be able to delegate efficiently.
2: Right. So, for example, I created an email sequence for music schools that was based on the fact that, yeah, here, somebody pointed out that parents wanted to know what was next after Kids Rock, and that they felt like they were worried that their child wasn't really learning anything, like, like they wanted something, yeah. some tangible metric. Now, that's what's nice about sheet music, is if, you, if a parent sees sheet music, they go, oh, that looks like something important. <laughs> and, you know, I don't understand what it means, but clearly yeah. smart people know how to decipher that and implement that. Whereas, like at my school, I never implemented sheet music or a method book until two months in. It was all heart and soul chopsticks, you know, but coming from an experienced teacher. Not those songs, but here, kid, here's how to play this. And so with uh, Kids Rock, parents were confused. Like, yeah, the band sounds good, but what are they learning? Like, So I said, okay, I'm going to create an email sequence that explains specifically what they're learning in Kids Rock. And some of those things, it, it, it would sort of to go back to the analogy of Daniel's son being a, a pitcher. Um, you know, if Daniel went to his coach and said, what's my kid learning on... On you know, this baseball team. Oh, he's learning about teamwork, he's learning about leadership, he's learning about how to manage stress, how to manage anxiety. Oh, okay, that's not on a piece of paper. Parents know that when it comes to sports. With kids rock, it's not so clear. So I created this email sequence that explains to them what the child musically is learning outside of the page. And then I took that language and made little bullet points for the teachers and said, Teachers, these are some ideas that we share with the parents, when you're talking to the parents, infuse some of this language into your conversation. So one of the things in Kids Rock is at the end of the class, parents come in and the kids perform. And now the teachers can infuse some of this. It's really marketing language, but it's marketing language that the school is broadcasting to the parents to help them understand what Kids Rock is, what value is in it, and what the kids
0: are learning, and what's going to happen after Kids Rock. What's a sample, Mm -hmm. give me a sample line that a teacher who delivered it effectively, what would you say? Right, i say, all right, parents, um, at this point, the band's focused
2: on each kid knowing the order of notes that they have to play and what rhythm they have to play. I'm not concerned at this point about whether they can do it together well as a group. That's a goal that we're working towards. So I want to really quickly have each kid play their part. Okay, good. Now the pro, that sounds good, guys. Now we're going to play it. They play and they're stumbling. They sound like drunken sailors as they're trying to execute these chord changes. Parents, like I said, at this point, I'm not concerned about whether they can do it all together as a team. Clearly, they all have shown that individually they know what their, their role is. We're going to be working together as a team to work towards that point. And, and something I'll say to parents a lot also in there is that up to this point, music has been in your child's imagination and fantasies. You know, I'm like, parents, I want raise your hand if when you were young, you ever grabbed a hairbrush and pretended you were on stage singing to a
1: crowd, <laughs> hands
2: go up. So that's what your child's experience with music has been like. And we want that fantasy component to continue on in here. But there has to be a transition from the fantasy to the to the you know, reality of having to play together. And so it takes them a while. Through repetition, they will eventually start being able to um, sound more cohesive as a group. So it's taking pressure off of the teachers because one of the things I say in the training is your band will sound like a train wreck weeks one through five, and that's okay. Yes. And for the teacher to be able to say to the parent, that's not the objective right now. This is what the objective is. We're going to get there. And then at the concert, all of a sudden it comes together. And then at the first class after the concert, parents, didn't your kids do great? Oh, they all clap for the kids. Well, remember in week three how they sounded. You know, you see that your your children are learning the valuable life lesson of being persistent, of having a set goal and working towards it. Parents like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Whenever you can weave in, same with private lessons, when you can talk about life skills that kids are learning and character traits that they're developing through the music lesson, parents are all ears. Because at the end of the day, they don't care about the piano. They care about how the kid is, is, is growing as, as a person. And the more you can put character development and um, social skills and personality traits front and center and music as the vehicle,
0: the more parents are going to respond. It's so, it's such money right there, Dave. I can't uh, say how often in training with new teachers, this idea of just trying to pivot the mindset away from we teach piano lessons to we're going to mentor this child and transform her life over the next seven to 10 years. Um, You know, that's the musician's journey. It happens without you even
2: telling the parents. That just, it's inherent to music lessons. Yeah. Music lessons... You know, one thing I used to say to my staff is I'd say, guys, what would your life be like if music wasn't in it? They're like, oh, my God, I'd be like depressed. suicide. I can't even imagine They're like, OK, well, this is what we're giving to these kids is this ability to express themselves in this therapeutic, um, you know, I- expression. And it's like the parents do you're trying to sell a product to people that don't even understand the benefits of it because they themselves aren't musicians. I'm going to guess that 95% of the parents in your music school aren't actual musicians. So they don't fully understand the benefits of music lessons, but they know there's some magic there. They believe in it. And our culture and our society believes in it. But if you can, um, so it happens anyway, but just by simply pointing it out to parents that this is what's happening, it allows them to think about um, music differently.
0: Um, I want to bring it back to like minute 11, the very yeah. early point. And I want to go back to your buddy who is eight miles away in St. Louis with the school of rock opening up. Yeah. Um, true story at Brooklyn music factory, a school of rock opened up on our block. Wow. And so, um, this, this story really resonates for us. Because it's a great opportunity to get very focused, as you've pointed out, on what you do well, what uniquely is the purpose for your program. Um, so you're working with this guy. He's having success in, in his program. And then School of Rock opens up Little Wings. Yeah. So I'm curious, from your vantage point, um, here you have this, it's it's literally the world's largest. Franchise, music franchise, right? The former CEO was McDonald's CEO, you know, our VP. So here you've got this behemoth who's stepping into an area where you've developed a really unique uh, program that's, and then they're saying, actually, we're going to develop little wings. Tell me from your vantage point, as someone who's building this, what do you, what was your initial emotional reaction when you saw them launch that? new sub brand well i freaked out yeah <laughs> and i i called them i called the school of rock
2: that had it posing as a potential customer market research <laughs> i wanted to hear i wanted to hear their sales pitch i heard their sales pitch i'm like great i'm not going to lose any more sleep over this their their program's unique enough and different enough than mine That I feel a parent looking at the two programs. So Little Wing is um, music musical exploration where they play, um, faint you know like well known rock songs and the kids explore the different instruments. And I was posing as a bit of a helicopter parent. I wanted details. Um, like, yeah, but like, is he going to learn how to read music in there? And um, like, is this something that's going to really help my son, you know, transition into private lessons? Do they have some sort of like end of, basically, I was taking the things that also work with kids rock and saying, like, well, so do they have a performance in there? Um, when they, And, you know, so I, I got all these questions like, good. This is a version of music together. But for mm-hmm. older kids, where it's they're using shakers and they're using electric guitars, but they're not learning how to play the guitar. So I then I said, okay, I now have to um, take into consideration that a parent might be calling one of my licensees who also just called School of Rock, who's contemplating kids rock or little wing. And I changed the sales pitch a little bit so that. It would one by one um, cross off all the pluses to the Little Wings program, not by putting Little Wings down, but by accentuating what Kids Rock does. So I would talk about like the group aspect and how they're learning about teamwork and how they actually perform as a standalone ensemble. Nope. Other, um, you know, Little Wing isn't doing that. So if a parent were to list the pros and the cons of each program, I was making sure to really accentuate the cons of Little Wing. Not that there's anything wrong with that program, but it was, um, and, and I had to do the same with Kids Rock. What is potentially weak about Kids Rock? Where are the vulnerabilities? Where could Little Wings look at Kids Rock and go, ah, yeah, but Kids Rock doesn't do this. Little Wings does. And um, so
0: so I just shifted the marketing a bit. And that would go in the owner training. You'd be like, right. and would you literally cite little wings in the owner no. training? No, you would just accentuate the positives from Kids Rock, uh, which, by the way, what? is exactly what we're talking about in terms of ongoing development of any one of our listeners' schools. That's getting to know the competitors or the other music schools within them program and not treating them as competitors but rather saying how can it help us right actually accentuate the positive of what we do or if we're not even that clear on what we do as you're pointing out it's possible to actually use this as a focal point as is right. this a moment of opportunity
2: well i'm sure you guys are familiar with the book art of war by sun Su. right but he talks about how when you confront your enemy you don't want to you know you know, you look where they're strong and you go, Well, we're not going to attack over there because their defenses are so well fortified. But over here on this eastern flank, they don't expect us there. This is where we need to attack because there's some vulnerabilities there. And someone also said, Don't think of your competitor as a competitor, they're a rival. A rival is someone that coexists with you. And it's like you can don't lose sleep over your competition they're going to, ultimately, they have to bring out the best in you. They have to bring out, like you said, your superpower. And if, um, let's say, for example, like when School of Rock came into our market, we're like, okay, great, we're going to go head to head with them because we're heavy on rock bands. And so are they. So we said, fine, we're not going to. So one of our questions was, well, School of Rock goes into bigger venues than we do. They go into the like 3,000, 5,000 capacity venue. We go into the 300 capacity venue. I don't have 10 grand to spend to rent out the big venue. So I said, fine, we're not going to um, compete with them there. We're going to compete with them on culture. We're going to start having Friday and Saturday night social events at the school where kids can hang out, watch movies, do open mics. School of Rock's not doing that. So we said, where are they weak? And it's not that they're weak because they don't do that. It's just we, I looked for an opening in in their business model and said, this is where we can, we can um, outmaneuver them is yes. They're rock band. Yeah. My like school of rock takes their bands on tour. I don't do that. I don't want that liability. Oh. It, it's, it's very sexy and glamorous, you know, to, to a parent, fine. We're going to focus on community and, um, who was it? Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk said something that just worked perfect for a music school. He's like, you can separate yourself by doing things for your community, like getting your customers together and like filling like potholes or picking up trash in your local. I was like, oh my God, wouldn't that be amazing if you did some volunteer work with your students, nothing to do with music, but this whole idea of giving back to the community. Imagine, From a marketing standpoint, when you're on the phone with the parents say, oh, not only are we doing music lessons here, but we really teach the kids by giving back to the community. Here's some things that we do. Mm. We're not just about music lessons here. We create social opportunities. We have Friday and Saturday night social nights where kids can meet kids from from other schools. What I quickly realized, and I forgot about this. Remember when you were like 10, how you never had plans on a Saturday night. Never. And occasionally, if you got to go to a movie, it was like really exciting. Whereas so it's like, hey, you get to come out to your music school on a Saturday night with some of your buddies who don't go to the school. It can be potential future students of the music school. And there's going to be an open mic night. The kids loved it. I thought they were going to like be bored. It was like the greatest thing. So it's just look where your your competitor or your rival is strong. And ask yourself, what can we do that they aren't doing? It's not what are they bad at, but what can we do that they're not doing?
0: Hmm. Yeah, and it's like back to one of the most important comments I think you made early on when you're talking about, uh, or if you're considering developing a curriculum that you might offer as a license to someone else, lean into whatever is unique in in your learning environment. Yeah. Just lean into it. And, and it doesn't really, have to be a musical aspect. Right. It could be exactly like, you know, at, at, at BMF, our community room is the largest classroom we have. So, you know, treating music as a social art form, communing in the community room is essential to us delivering on our purpose. And in a real estate market like New York, I've talked about this on previous podcasts, that's insane, right? To spend 40 50 60 $70 a square foot and not be generating revenue from it or an immediate or a direct link to the revenue, right? However, it's what's, I believe, one of the key elements of what's got us to where we are is a large Um, community room.
1: Maybe a a good way to kind of draw to a close here, Dave, would be um, if you could give one, I know this is so hard and we've spent a good amount of time here giving a lot of great ideas, but for someone who wanted to share their idea with the world. Um, what is the, the single nugget of wisdom that if you had a time machine it could travel back to 2008 that you would go back and give to yourself?
2: Yeah, it would be find one person who's willing to pay a little bit of money, not a lot, to incorporate your program into their business and, or your idea and and not not give it to them for free. If you give it to them for free, they're not going to do it. You know, so let's say you're going to you have some software that you're working on or you have some new online course that you're yeah. working on. Say to them, "Okay, it's going to be, you know, $200 a month. I'll give it to you for $50 a month." Yeah. I'm going to walk your I'm going to be on call. I'm actually going to teach some of these classes for you. You know, make it where they can't Say no. It's just yeah. too appealing of an idea. Like, oh yeah, we really need a group guitar class, and we've tried it, and then it hasn't worked out. And yes, I recognize that my our, pro, our profit margins would be better. And you say to them, you know, you got to have a little bit of skin in the game, or maybe you say to them, I'll give you fifty dollars a month. Pay me fifty a month. At, at any point, you're not satisfied. I'll, I'll give you, I'll refund you all your money. Make it where there's no risk for them. There's pure benefit for them. And then just get one person to buy in. And then once you kind of create that tension in your life where it's like, oh my God, how do I do this? Then you start, new new problems reveal themselves to you. Because mm-hmm. with Kids Rock, the teacher could come out of the room and go, Dave, how do I do this? I'm like, oh, just have the kid, you know, Tell them the, tell them a joke about 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 a cowboy and a horse. Okay, great. And then they, they'd run in, but it wasn't um, you know it, it it getting it outside of the four your four walls is really tricky. So doing whatever you can to insert yourself in yeah. into their four walls. What's nice now about you know when I started Kids Rock there was there wasn't Zoom. Maybe there was uh, what's the other one Skype, but it didn't yeah. occur to me to use that stuff. <laughs> And so I didn't realize I could export myself. Hmm. I think now it's much easier to, to launch, launch a program. But because it's so easy, our the, the space has gotten a little noisy. A lot of people are coming out with online courses, a lot of new uh, business coaches in the music education space. I mean, Daniel, just look at how much has changed since you started.
1: Yeah. Was,
2: I mean, it was a pretty um, you know quiet playing field.
1: It really was.
2: So yeah, it's it's a little noisier now, but it doesn't that's that's good. Now it's more competitive. That means you got to really have a good product that that fixes a problem that's really immediate to people uh-huh. for people.
0: Uh yep. Daniel, before you wrap for us, can I just highlight one comment you made, Dave? Because I think it's so important for our listeners. You said it creates tension when you bring on that first customer. To yeah. me, what I see all the time is no shortage of ideas but very little action. The create tension to me is that moment where you go from idea to action. Because there's actually someone on the other end of the phone, on the other end of the Zoom. There's someone who needs your idea to work. So I just, I love that point. I think from idea to action is the key differential in, in terms of step one. This notion of like a really small launch, find one person right. is just a a beautiful concept and I think less intimidating, honestly, for probably a lot of our listeners when they think, who would want my, you know, piano book that I've made or what have you. Hey, it's Nate again. You know, every year at Brooklyn Music Factory, we get dozens and dozens of great reviews from our families. And you want to know how? Because we ask them and they're happy to leave a review because of the positive impact that we've made on them. And so now I have a simple ask for you. If this podcast, the 7FMS podcast, was helpful to you, would you mind leaving a review for Daniel and I? And please share the podcast with another music school owner that you think might benefit. It's one of the best ways that you can support us. We appreciate it.